0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: You know, without plants, we wouldn't be here. They were here first, we came later. Um, There's been this magical, beautiful dance of cooperation and love and friendship between humanity and plants. You know, if you think about where we got our warmth from, was burning logs, burning a plant. We Plants gave us warmth. When we needed shelter, we could use plants to create huts and, and give us shelter. In the evening, they take our CO2 that we pumped out during the day and they flip it back and give us O2. So we've got a beautiful dance of breath there. And of course, you know, apart from the many other things, the biggest thing they've done is give us nourishment. They've provided us with the with the energy, with the micronutrients, with the, the enzymes, with the, the vitamins, the minerals, that our cellular level of our, of our human um, makeup desires, needs to perform at their best and be their best and prolong life and provide energy for all the wonderful, amazing things that we've done.
3: Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Joe, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: So, it's an absolute pleasure, mate.
0: It is really great to have you here. You know, so I was introduced to you by way of our mutual friend, Philip McKernan, who said that we absolutely had to have you on the show. And everybody that Philip had recommended and referred so far has been absolutely phenomenal. So no pressure at all,
1: but uh, it's fantastic. <laughs> Let's hope I can keep up the momentum. In
0: the- <laughs> but it's fantastic to have you. here. So I want to start by asking what social group were you a part of when you were in high school? And what impact has that had on the choices that you've made with your life and with your career?
1: I was actually, um, I was a bit of a loner. I, I had um, high school down here in Australia, as you can probably tell where I'm from with my accent. Uh, I was sort of a bit of a loner. I, I think that um, the social group that I did end up having as I got a bit older, like into the last couple of years of high school, um, that did impact me, my, my future in a way that not many of those mates of mine went to college, and so it sort of seemed pretty much okay for me not to go to college. I, I got a job when I was 17 when I left school delivering um, mail and taking tickets from banks down to the trading floors of the Stock Exchange and the Futures Exchange in Sydney in the uh, in the mid-80s. And so uh, I guess that um, it sort of made me feel that I wasn't alone in that my mates never went to university, so me not going to university was, uh, was not a problem. And that certainly has shaped where i've ended up today because i i started in the in the world of paperboy delivery and ticket delivery and i got a job on the trading floor of the sydney futures exchange pretty quickly and from there i was often running my entrepreneurial ways hmm.
0: so walk me through sort of the the journey from there to where you are today
1: well it, it's quite interesting because it, it sort of came in 5 year chunks um, up until when i was uh, 40 so if you sort of think about you know that seventeen to, to twenty two age group, I I worked for a, a merchant bank when merchant banks were just getting started down in the Australian um, deregulation of the financial markets. I became a trader on the floor of the futures exchange. Now, futures exchange back in those days, the best way to describe it is where uh, Eddie Murphy played that movie Trading Places, where they went down into the trading pit, put the coloured jackets on, screamed out numbers, and. Now, the only thing I was really good at, at at school was maths and adding up, and I had a very loud voice, and so it, just lucky. I was just very fortunate that, you know, they were two really important skills that were needed to be able to count quickly and scream out on a trading floor. And so I started working for a bank called Elders Drexel, which is a bit of a merger from the Michael Milken days of Drexel, Burnham, Lambert, for those old enough um, to remember, <laughs> the junk, the, the, <laughs> the junk bond king. And so I worked for these guys for five years. I became a quite a good trader trading for the bank. And so when I was about 22, I decided to go out on my own account. And I, I, I was called a local member and I traded my own money, kind of day trader before day trading was cool. And I traded for five years of my own account, 60 months and only had one losing month. So I started to make quite a lot of money, uh, amassed a bit of capital, um, had a good life, you know, I was in my early mid-20s, so I was I was not um, as diligent as probably I should have been. I was having a lot of fun as well. And um, then I decided to, to launch my first company when I was 27. took me a year to get it going. We launched it in 28. That was my um, company called United Capital Securities, which is a futures broker. I basically worked out that lots of guys like me were paying commissions to banks and bigger institutions, and why couldn't I just go and lasso you know 50 to 100 of these guys and turn on the turn on the brokerage tap on day one and have a profitable company straight out of the gate which is what we did and then um, the uh, entrepreneurial side of me got got a bit excited and I started making investments in technology and trading platforms this was the emergence of the internet and the and the idea of the technology and finance and all of that coming together with uh with with um, the internet and trading online and so on. So this was these were exciting times. I went and did that. Had a few wins, few losses, nothing nothing to get too excited about, but still kept my head above water. And then um then I was fortunate enough to, to uh to work for um probably one of the one of the uh great uh Australian success stories in business, a guy called Mr. Rupert Murdoch who is well known around the world for his um, media empire, and I was I was fortunate enough to work for him for uh, four to five years in the in the family office area or the private the private side of, of his businesses, and that gave me a much broader experience of looking out at other bigger deals, much bigger than I'd been looking at, and being responsible for tidying up things. And uh, you know, it was a it was a it was a very um, exciting time for me. I was I was. Basically, in my sort of early to mid thirties, then um, around that time, I actually, uh, you know, had been pretty healthy. I'd been a bit of an athlete when I was at school. Rugby. I was in the rowing crew. I was, you know, I was I was not um, fat by any means. I was probably about eighty kilos, eighty five kilos when I left school, which in pounds is sort of co- kind of like two hundred pounds in that sort of in that sort of um, ballpark I was fit I could run 10 miles I could swim two miles I was pretty fit and then of course with all this work that came about um, slowly the exercise started to to fade into the background the alcohol consumption the fast food consumption the long hours at work and of course the apart from my bank account um, increasing so did my uh, my waistband and my um, waist size I should say and so I started to put on a bit of weight. Got the the porch, the, we call the beer gut down here in Australia. Started to develop, and around the age of 32 33, so when I, I actually broke. I, I got sick, and I got sick with a with a disease called chronic urticaria angioedema, which is really a fancy way of saying chronic hives that gets right under your skin. And uh, this was a disease that was effectively um, myself. I was sort of fighting myself. I my my protection, my immune system was completely confused and had no idea of what was a foreign body that was coming into what I need to protect against and not. So, any kind of touch, any kind of pressure, any kind of physical content on my body, my mast cells, which is our first line of defence, they they confused that for like a mosquito bite or a wasp bite or a bee sting. So essentially, <clears throat> my body was going into this incredible. Um, overreaction and uh it made life um, completely unbearable and you know i would wake up some mornings looking like the elephant man i couldn't stand up because of my feet were so swollen i couldn't bend my elbow my hands i couldn't use you couldn't even type some days let alone hold groceries hold um hold a baby or you know put a car seat belt on <laughs> and so this this is something that i dealt with. Um, doctors didn't know what to do they had no answer they just said this is idiopathic which is this kind of word they use for when they don't know how that they kind of know what it is but they don't know where it came from or they don't know how to get rid of it they just know how to treat the symptoms which is by bombarding it with lots and lots of steroids which as many of the uh, listeners out there would know is not a good long-term solution Uh, steroids can have very serious uh, side effects if they're taken in large doses not to mention moon face, which is most unattractive, and hunchback, and osteoporosis, weight gain, of course, and many other not-so-appealing uh, side effects. So this sort of changed my my track to where I am now in that I, I sort of got this when I was 32, and then I didn't do much about it. I kind of outsourced my health to... Um, to the world of medicine and drug companies. And I kind of thought that's what was normal. I thought that's what you do. When you get sick, you go to the people who went to college, who went to university, who studied in hospitals. They're the people who look after disease. I'm busy building my empire. I'm busy doing my deals for, for uh, the rich and famous, so to speak, and I'm, I'm, I'm just too busy. So here's a bunch of cash. Here's my problem. I'm outsourcing my health to this provider. And that's essentially the route I took um, till I was 40. Now, around that age, um, I ended up selling my first company, the business that I founded right way back when I was 28. And it was, a, was quite a good result for me. I, I, did, I did pretty well on that one. It was the first time in my life that I had a, quite a lot of money in the bank. And I sort of looked at myself in the mirror on my 40th birthday, and I was around 340 pounds. And I was loaded up on medication. I I was had high blood pressure. I had high cholesterol. I was pre-diabetic. I was still taking this medication that I'd been taking since I was 32. So eight years of these meds every morning and every night. And uh, I've got to be honest, on the day of my 40th birthday, I looked in the mirror and I didn't really know who was looking back at me. There was this moment where I was like, wow, I remember just 20 years ago, just, you know, 15 years ago when I was this athlete, when I was 120 to 130 pounds lighter than where I am now, that I was fit, that I could look down and see my feet. Um, and this was like a real sort of aha moment for me in that I went, wow, you know, I'm a, I'm a kind of a maths and a projection guy. If, if, I, if I go back 20 years and that's where I was, what happens if I use that time machine and go forward 20 years? where am I going to be at my 60th birthday? Um, Where am I going to be at my 70th? Am I going to be here? Will I be around? And so this was a big moment. I call it, you know, essentially, I got into the house of mirrors and had a good, hard look at myself. And sometimes in life, it's very, it's very um, difficult to be honest. And it's sometimes incredibly difficult to be honest with yourself. And this was one of those moments where I really had to be honest with myself. Now, a lot of people have asked me, like, didn't you know you were fat, Joe? Didn't you know you were sick? Of course I knew that. I mean, of course I did. But, you know, people telling you something is one thing, but when it comes from within, when when that conversation is initiated from the inner, inner self, that is so much more powerful than anyone out there telling you something. It's just like it pales into insignificance. I... When I get up and give my talks, I always ask the audience, please put your hand up, all those people who love being told what to do. And of course, you don't see many hands, unless, of course, there are some husbands there with their wives and they feel that. <laughs> but the reality is the reality is the next question I ask is, hands up, all those people who love telling people what to do. And of course, those who are honest, every hand goes up in the room. And that right there is a huge disconnect that. Um, that that inner conversation, that inner self can bridge. And so this was my, this was my wake up call. This was my, this was my opportunity that I either, we have an expression down here in Australia, you know, for procrastination, you either, you know, you shit or you get off the pot. Um, and for me, it was, wow, i got to do something about this or I'll just let things go and, you know, roll the dice and see where I end up. And so, I didn't actually change anything that day because I didn't know what to do, but I was open and my ears and eyes and everything about me was ready for information. I was ready to take information in. My grandmother, um, when I was growing up, had given me some very good advice. She said, Joe, you've got two ears and one mouth. You should listen twice as much as you speak. So I decided to employ my grandmother's advice and start to listen. And probably the first thing I heard was, from Professor Ron Penny, who's one of the one of Australia's leading immunologists. Um, he's retired now, but at the time, he was one of the top immunologists in the country, and he told me, he said, Joe, you know, 70% of all disease is caused by lifestyle choices. 70% of all disease is caused by lifestyle choices. Now, what are those lifestyle choices, Serena? You know what they are? Not in any order, but the big three are whether you smoke, what you eat and drink, and how much moving you do or don't do and then closely followed behind are the the next three which is what's your sleep like how much do you get how you manage your stress and how connected you are to society and friends not being alone so I went down the list of these six things and you know okay I had some friends but I was failing and everything else so I was like whoa Possibly, just possibly, given this, this mathematical statistic of 70% of all disease caused by lifestyle choices, that kind of by default means that 30% of disease is just bad luck. Like, you know, blame the genetic material from your parents, wrong place, wrong time, picked up allergy, or whatever it is, it's just bad luck. But 70% is within our control. So these were kind of pretty good. Good odds, I thought, at least for someone who'd been walking around with what I felt or what I'd been told was a disease that was incurable and that I had this all my life. So I started to dream up and put my business skills, my startup skills, everything I'd learned in my life up until that moment into this idea of what about if I do a startup, you know, that was fixing Joe, you know, that is all about how do we get Joe back on track? So I had at the time half a dozen investments, and I started to unwind things. I, I told you earlier I'd already sold my biggest asset, so I was just in this complete zone of clean up, clean up, and um, focus on Joe. So it took me about took me about a year to get all that together to be able to to learn what to do, to work out what to do, how to execute, and clear the deck, um, and you know, I use logic in terms of trying to fix Joe and fix, you know, which is, don't like speaking in the third person, but fixing myself. And the the two logical things when I looked in the mirror that day was that I was fat and I was sick and I was nearly dead. Now, the fat is obvious, you know, 330, 340 pounds, that's obvious, right? The sick was also obvious because I'd been taking medication and, my medication pills for, you know, everything else was sort of six or seven a day. And so, you know, that's not normal. Uh, and the nearly dead part was, well, when I used that time machine to go forward, it was like, well, where am I going to be? And here I am at 40. You know, I, my, statistically speaking, half my life was over, but I was probably worse than the average. So, you know, that was kind of like this dramatic nearly dead sort of focus that I put on it. So I felt that by fixing myself, what I needed to do was address the fat and address the sick. And then the nearly dead would take care of itself. So, you know, what do you do when you're not a doctor, you're not a scientist, you're just a logic person. You start looking at history. You start looking at, 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 you know, my first port of call, to be honest, was how come us humans are the most successful species on this planet? You know, what have we done for this uh, four or five million years of humanoids and, two hundred and twenty five thousand, two hundred and forty thousand years of homo sapien, which is, you know, roughly 10,000 sets of grandparents you and I have had and a 10,000 genetic swaps of of homo sapien that's created the magnificent you and I, Mm Serene. What have we done in that period of time that's made us this, this, the the top of the food chain? What have we done that's made us this ability to alter the, the biosphere of the planet to to create this technology, to to rule like we do on planet Earth. And you know what I came up with? It was this connection between us and plants. And I sort of drilled down on the fact that, you know, without plants, we wouldn't be here. They were here first. We came later. Um, There's been this magical, beautiful dance of cooperation and love and friendship between humanity and plants. You know, if you think about where we got our warmth from, it was burning logs, burning a plant. We Plants gave us warmth. When we needed shelter, we could use plants to create huts and, and give us shelter. In the evening, they take our CO2 that we pumped out during the day and they flip it back and give us O2. So we've got a beautiful dance of breath there. And, of course, you know, apart from the many other things, the biggest thing they've done is give us nourishment. They've provided us with the with the energy, with the micronutrients, with the, the enzymes, with the, the vitamins, the minerals, that our cellular level of our, of our human um, makeup desires, needs to perform at their best and be their best and prolong life and provide energy for all the wonderful, amazing things that we've done. And so this realisation... Of how important Mother Nature is to humanity was like a real, you know, clock in the jaw for me because basically what I'd done since I left home in my early twenties, so effectively for the last twenty years, was I turned my back on Mother Nature. I mean, I was living on a diet that was high in processed food and animal products. I was, you know, the only the only veggies I was having was the pickles on my burgers, you know, at McDonald's. I mean, and the French fries, which is potato and that was basically it. So, you know, I had, um, you know, rolled the dice and, you know, you cannot ignore the biological laws of cause and effect, you know. You just can't you can't ignore those laws. But I did and I paid the price. And so, to me, it was pretty logical that what I needed to do was to um, go back to Mother Nature's uh, door, knock on it and reintroduce myself and ask her, will she have me back? And, of course... Mother Nature is very forgiving so very forgiving, unlike some other females in my life. She opened the door, said hello, <laughs> and um, she said, Joe, welcome back. But, you know, words are cheap. I need action, mate. I need action. You've got to show me some, you know, rubber hitting the road here, pal. And so I kind of made this commitment that if – but I didn't really know if I was in the 70% category of that I'd caused this problem or whether I was in the 30% category. I really didn't know. So I had to work out a sort of some kind of methodology, some kind of plan to find out. And I figured that I'd done like 20 years of smashing myself. So what if I gave a commitment to Mother Nature to do two years of just eating plant food, you know, fruits, vegetables, nuts, beans, seeds, whole grains, no animal, no processed What would happen if I did this kind of like a jail term, if you like? You know, I've done 20 years of a crime. What if I sentence myself to fruit and veggie prison? What if I go and do a two-year stretch? And if at the end of the two years, I'm still on medication, I'm still sick, then I would be prepared to accept that no matter what I did in my life, I was in that unlucky 30% camp. But boy... I was hoping that I was in that 70% camp, which I'm going to call the complete ignoramus, stupidity, idiot camp because that's the group of people which I was hoping that I was in, which is just doing all this harm to ourselves. So that was how I was going to address the sick part. Pretty simple, right? Mm -hmm. Now I had to look at the fat part. What do I do about the fat part? Because, you know, I'm, um, I'm standing there. 330, 340 pounds. This isn't normal. I should be, you know, I'm I'm six foot two. So I should be like probably 220, 230, 240. You know, it is a good weight for me. That's where I probably should be. So I figured like I've got like 100 to lose. I'm carrying another person around. Why? What's the benefit of this? Once again, go back over the millions of years of humanoids, go back over the couple of hundred thousand years of homo sapiens. What's this advantage of being fat, not how do we get fat, but why do we get fat? Like, what's the what's the reason? And of course, it turns out that it's basically twofold: it's to regulate body temperature from climates, and of course, the main reason is it's to store up energy for lean times. You know, we have predominantly up until very recently, humanity's gone through feast and famine uh, throughout its existence. And when we have the famines, our bodies and our our species has survived predominantly because we've been able to store up enough calories on our body so that we can survive the, the harsher, leaner times. And then we come through those strong and we, we refeed and we restore for the next one. Well, you don't need to be Einstein to work out that there's a feast on every corner today. You know, everywhere you go, there's a feast. You go to get energy for your car, there's energy for you. Everywhere, without fail, there is some kind of feasting that can be done. And I'm not sure about L.A. or New York or where I am right now down in Sydney, Australia, but Hong Kong. But, you know, there isn't too many famines coming our way, anything, You know, we've got this thing worked out. We've got this distribution of energy and calories and processed food. We've, we've, we've pretty much mapped it for the Western world. Sure, there's still famine going on in, in the underdeveloped world, but, you know, in where we are, we got it worked out. So I kind of looked at that and said, well, you know, this, this adds a whole different light to the way I look at myself. I mean, before I was looking at myself as this, you know, fat, useless, ugly, you know, no hope, a loser sort of mentality. Now, once I realized this, I started looking at myself as though, wow, this is my body protecting me. This is my body looking after me. This is my body storing up all this energy so that if a famine does hit Sydney, by crikey, I'll be the last man standing. This is fabulous. This is perfect. So I started to view this extra energy as as as, as this with this fat as extra energy, not fat, like fat gets a pretty bum rap, you know, it's knocked around a bit. But really, it's just stored energy waiting to be expressed and used. So I thought what I've got to do is I've got to create a famine, I've just got to, I've just got to not eat, I've just got to go and and implement, you know, forget going back 20 years in my time machine, I've got to go back 20,000 years, I've got to go and, and bring a famine to my world. Now, this contradicted the the original concept of two years of just eating plant food, right? So now I've got a little bit of a contradiction going on with my two great ways to solve my problem. And so that's where the world of juicing, which is effectively when you look at a plant, it's made up mostly of water. So what if I extracted the water from the plant? Um, what if I squeezed the kale? What if I squeezed the cucumber, the celery, the silverbeet, the sweet potato, the apple, the watermelon, the pineapple, the ginger, the lemon. What if I squeeze all of that and I extract out the water that's been trapped in those plants? When that water comes out, it comes out all different colours. It's either red, it's green, it's purple, um, it's orange. Um, You know, these are are beautiful colours of captured, harnessed sunlight and in that colour is all this micronutrient value that we need. And so I was thinking, you know, Using that analogy of my fruit and veggie prison, what if I was to do 60 days in solitary and just juice only for 60 days, create my two month famine, so to speak, by drinking Mother Nature's finest, you know, real vitamin water, real nutrient water. What if I was to do that? And of course, drink normal water as well. So I had a plan. This was it. I was going to do two years of plants, supercharging my journey was 60 days of just drinking the juice from fruits and veggies. And uh, then a mate of mine said, Joe, you know, you're the most least likely bloke to do this. Why don't you put a camera on yourself and film it? Because you're not Robinson Crusoe in the way you look and the way you behave. And there might be plenty of other people out there that could benefit from this. And, you know, if it did work, it's a big if, but if it works, that could be helpful. And so I thought to myself, you know, it's probably two big benefits of putting a camera on myself. Number one is it's something that's like it's like a community. I can look down that lens and it's my support group. And the second thing was exactly what my mates were saying, that, you know, if this works, this could be huge. This could really help a lot of people. And up until this stage in life, I'd been pretty focused on my own building business. Sure, I was good to employees. I, was, I gave to charity, but I really hadn't done anything greater good. I hadn't really... You know gone out there and really thought about how can I how can I leave this place a better place than than how I arrived and So maybe that's a long answer to the question of how I got from where I was when I was 17 to now But that's kind of where I got to when I was 40 and I'm 50 today So that was 10 years ago. So I might take a break because you might have a couple of questions. there, Serena.
0: I do have quite a few questions in fact Luxury quality within reach, go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash
3: style. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level, too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Um, But I want to go back to the beginning of the story to to talk about that. So the first thing I want to ask you uh, is about working with somebody like Rupert Murdoch to have been up close to, to somebody like that. Because I have, you know, and I think I may have mentioned this on the air before, I've started this very bizarre reading project um, to learn about billionaires where I thought to myself, well, I don't have access to a billionaire, but I know what books a lot of them read. I know their book recommendations are online. So I'm going through this ridiculous project of reading every book written by, recommended by, or written about a billionaire, which, you know, for all I know, that could take me a lifetime. And so far, all I've learned is that billionaires read really long books. Um, But uh, I am curious. Um, what you 've learned about success, human behavior uh, and relationships from being up close and personal to somebody like that, who in many ways is also a very controversial figure
1: sure um look I think that that there's there 's the business side and there 's the personal side of 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 all of us and I think that rarely um have I met people that you know there, those two, those two sides are the same. And, and he's no different. I mean, on a personal level, I think he's just a terrific guy and, and great storyteller and great listener. And, you know, he asks, he asks the best questions of anyone I've ever met in my life. You know, the thing about him is that I no matter how prepared I was, no matter how much work I'd done, he still managed to ask me the question that would stump me in, in all the meetings. And that's, I think that he just has an incredibly inquisitive mind. I understand that he's that he's quite controversial, and I and I get that. Um, that's something that uh, that you know I don't think he I, I think he understands that. You know, I think he's okay with that. He's at peace with that. Um, as far as as far as what I learned, I, I think that when you are close to people that um, are that ask the right questions, that that listen, that if you can try and emulate some of those things, that can be very helpful. To, to your own to your own progress, and I think that's probably what I learned the most was to listen a lot, um, spending time with him, and uh, you know also you know he's someone who's very generous. He's a very generous person, and so that is something else that I picked up on. And um, you know he's he, he doesn't do it. He doesn't look for fanfare with his generosity. He doesn't want coverage and all of that. And, and that's something that I think is 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 quite honourable. So I picked up I picked up those things. Hmm. So this is a
0: question that um, came about from a conversation I had with uh, Justine Musk, Elon Musk's ex-wife. When we, she wrote a piece about the psychology of visionaries um, on uh, that, that got picked up by the New York Times, it was about extreme success. You know, success at sort of this outsized level. And I'm curious, do you think that those kinds of achievements, you know, like the Robert Murdochs of the world, have have achieved? Is it possible to learn? what it is that enables achievement at that level? Or do you think that there are people who are just inherently capable of that?
1: Mm, That's a good question. (laughs) I think that there are a lot of people capable of that, that actually don't ever reach that goal. I think that's, that's very true. Um, Can you learn it? Look, I would, I'm a very optimistic person, so I would never say never, but I think that, um, you know the thing that I'm I, I keep seeing in my lifetime, and I've had the, the the fortune and the misfortune, depending on how you want to look at it. Spend a lot of time around a lot of people with money, and you know the thing that I see. There's a lot of luck involved, and I I think that this is something that a lot of people don't like talking about. And they and they really, when you really break it down, there's a tremendous amount of luck that comes in to to get into that kind of level whether it's you know the luck of being born into that money or whether it's the luck of being born at the right time when things were happening at that person's time the luck of going to the right college the school the meeting of this person the whatever it is but luck plays a huge role that doesn't discount you know how important it is to to be passionate about what you're doing to make huge sacrifice you know to to really take huge risk, all these other factors that are really important. But but I just, I just see that luck plays a huge role in so many things in our lives. I mean, I can just tell you with myself, you know, if I had made the movie that I made back in 2007 and released it, you know, um, I, I released mine in 2011. But if I'd made that, say, 10 years earlier, no one would have seen this film. The only reason that people know who I am and have seen you know, thirty million people around the world have watched my movies is because of Netflix and Netflix streaming. And I came at the right time. I mean, I, I launched a movie at a time when Netflix were taking you know quantity over quality. Now it's it's quality over quantity with Netflix. It's it's very difficult to get your content onto Netflix. They're very much about the original programming. So I think I think that you know what I would say is I would say that luck. Plays a much bigger role in success than people um, are prepared to accept and you know i have a, I have a few rules in my life and rule number two for me is that lady luck follows a person of action so you know if you 've got to create luck you've got to get out there and do things but you've still got to, you've still got to um, got to um, I believe that you need you need luck mm.
0: You, you said something at the beginning of that, that 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 kind of piqued my interest. You said that there are a lot of people who are capable of these kinds of things but don't achieve them. Why is that? What's that gap? Like and how do you bridge that gap?
1: Oh look, I think some I, I you know, I coined a phrase back um a while back called cDNA. We all know what DNA is. I, I, I created this thing in my own talks talking to people explained cDNA, which is cultural DNA. And that's that's the influence from the moment you're born, to everything around you. The the, uh, the family, the friends, the school, the environment. And, you know, I have met a, a, a huge number of very, very capable young kids. When I say young kids, you know, early 20s, late teens in my in my life, traveling around. And, you know, when you don't have that structure at home, the parents telling you, you can do it. When you don't have that environment where it's it's um, there's not you know I won't say the word stress free because that's probably a utopia but you know what I mean like not a not as a lot of stress at home right. when when there's support when there's a parent when there's an older sort of figure saying you know what little Johnny little Sally you can do this you are capable of doing this this is this is within your grasp you know. I think that plays a huge role, that, that idea to be able to visualize from a young age that you are capable of doing something. And so I think that the cDNA plays a massive impact. And, you know, you could argue that this is luck as to where you were born and right. where you landed, um, yeah. and it could tie in. But, but I, I I think that a tremendous amount of um, of, of outside influence. I and mean, I'm sure, Look look, I have... I have a social media following when when I tweet out or send a message a personal message or make a call to someone and tell them they're at the beginning of their journey and I just say listen you can do this. I mean, you can't underestimate what that means for someone that they look up to to tell them that they can do it. That you know that can be the difference of of making it and not and not making it. And you know, you might think it's a throwaway line when you meet someone at a book launch and and they read one of your books or any and they say you know this has really helped me and this is going to give me a chance to really go on and, and be successful you can't underestimate just the impact that you can have on somebody and and that's that's a that's a big responsibility and that's why every every action of of people like you and I that are in the in that in that sort of um, spotlight for those little moments even though it's a very small spotlight it's still important to them and so you know I would say that you know to cut it cut it down is that i think that there's a there's an enormous amount of talent out there that just needs the the push in the right direction of for someone saying that you can do this get in there it's going to be tough you know stick at it you're right listen to the inner voice and just go for it
0: You know, it's interesting uh, to hear you say that. It takes me back to a story of the day I graduated from business school. And, you know, we graduated April 2009. So it was a a shit time to graduate from any sort of school. It was like graduating into the Great Depression. Uh, And one of my professors walked over to my parents and said, I have a feeling about this one. He's gonna do something special. And I remember thinking, this is the worst day of my life. It's more like a funeral than a graduation <laughs> because nobody has a job, the economy sucks. I'm like, but to this day, I've never forgotten that. It, may, it had a profound impact on me.
1: Yeah, that, and that's, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, someone in authority, someone that you look up to believing in you, and you take that little bit of energy, you take a little bit of positive thought, and you multiply it and so that's there so anyone who's a parent out there anyone listening you know you don't need to overdo it right you can overdo it you just just balance all right you can't tell little johnny you can do everything in life you know there's there's a balance yeah
0: so I'm curious. Um, having gotten to the point of you know selling your company, and, and it sounds to me like at, at being at a point where you don't really have to worry about money. How did that change your perspective on wealth and money?
1: Um, well, I, I think at that moment in time, it was more of a relief than anything else. It's just like a relief mm-hmm. that um, that um, I, I got to the point where I built something in solar because you know. You know, when you're a trader, it's very easy to get a position. It's not as easy to get out of one, and and investing is is, is sort of like something I learned that it's very easy to write a check into a company and very difficult to get a check out of a company. You know, very difficult to get paid back. So there was there was probably the first thing was relief, but I couldn't I couldn't be you know I really wasn't focused on that at the time. It wasn't like this huge celebration because I was more about you know focused on my health. So. I kind of went from one thing to another that I felt was more important and more immediate. And so, you know, I made this movie and the movie became a huge success. And then on the back of that, I was kind of dragged into this world of health and wellness, which I had no intention of being involved in. I mean, like I made this movie with the view of helping myself and helping others, and then I was just going to get on with my life, go back to what I was doing. But, you know, it didn't allow me to do that. So all of a sudden I got caught up in this um, – in this you know world where I was sort of I was on the back foot so to speak you know there was huge demand lots of questions I couldn't I didn't have the technology to answer it all um, you know and and so it, it took me about it took me a long time to get out ahead of this thing um, and and some might argue that I'm still not but you know it's 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 it sort of really has gone very quickly this last 10 years so I went from a position of being very cash. Um, rich to to really now where I am after ten years of investment and pouring pouring my um, my heart and soul into what I do now to sort of be much more I, I'm probably I'm far less cash rich than I was and I'm more but I'm certainly more personally you know enriched and and I'm much healthier I mean I'm 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 extremely that's an extreme statement I'm much much healthier now than I was ten years ago I've got a more appreciation of humanity myself of the world and i i just you know if you were to sort of say you know and i, I know it's a bit of a cliche but to, to be perfectly honest i I'd, I'd much rather have done what i've done the last 10 years than doubled or tripled my wealth and still be you know 380 pounds and and feeling how i was hmm.
0: so that raises the question uh one that I, I've asked a handful of people and have yet to find an answer that satisfies me, um, and, and maybe because there is no answer to this question. Why do you think it takes that kind of a wake-up call for people to make drastic changes in their life? There just seems to be a common pattern that I see over and over
1: again. Because we think we're invincible. We think it's going to happen to someone else. <laughs> we, you know, we, 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 we like to think that that shit happens to someone else, that we're immune from that. We're not going to get cancer. We're not going to have heart disease. We're not going to have a stroke. That's other people. That's not me. Yeah. I think that that we also, you know, I have a saying that you spend the first 40 years of your life trying to kill yourself and the next 40 trying to stay alive. <laughs> you know, youth, youth has this thing about it, which is what's so beautiful and amazing about youth. You know, when you're in your 20s, it's an incredible time. It's a stressful time. Oh. Like, you know, you said yourself, you're... Finish college and it was like the worst day of your life. But you know, I guarantee you, when you're 70 and you're sitting there on the golf course, you know, and you're having a beer with your mates when you're 70, you're going to look back and say, "Wow, how could I even think about that being a terrible day? That was the most amazing time of my life. This potential that I had, you know." Yeah. Even now, you're probably thinking that. So perspective plays this plays this role, and I I also talk a lot about you know. I kind of feel we were born with this, um, you know, like, you know what a machete is, you know, like this huge big cutting knife and that each of us are born with a machete and we're sort of thrown into this jungle. We've got to carve out our path. We've got to like hack away every day, you know, and we're trying to carve out our own path in life. Some days, you know, you can see a mile ahead and it's just fantastic and you're running freely and you hardly need to even do any, you know. No vine chopping on those days. It just feels amazing. Other days, it's like so bleak and black and dark that you're chopping away and you feel like you're going nowhere. Sometimes you see people overtaking you really fast and you go, hey, what's going on with that? And other times you overtake people. Sometimes people are going the other direction and you're trying to question, am I going the right way? But the thing that I think that you're focusing in on and and the point that you just asked is that every now and then, you've got to climb a tall tree to make sure you're in the right bloody jungle. And that's perspective. That's stopping, getting out, rising above it all, going into that house of mirrors and having a good, hard look at yourself. And I think that that comes with maturity. That comes with, with, you know, experience. And so that is not something that a 15-year-old thinks of doing. That's probably not something. I know it happens. I know it happens, but they're the outliers. (laughs) Yeah. So so when you ask that question, you know, I think it's a prime time, you know, at 40 or 35 or this sort of zone 50 for that kind of climbing of a tall tree um, for that sort of thing to happen. So that doesn't surprise me that that occurs at around that period.
0: It's 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 funny you say that because I, I think that if you and I were having this conversation when I was uh, twenty uh, when I was a, a freshman in college I would have thought you were full of shit um, you know cool. <laughs> just I, I would have thought this is a complete waste of time why would anybody spend time on on thinking about this but I, I think almost all of this sort of thing that you talk about with perspective has happened much later in my life um, and it was almost all
1: all after thirty
0: is really when I started to to examine the choices that I was making much more closely.
1: Yeah, look, perspective is something that we could all do a lot of. I mean, you know, perspective is is something that um that when you bring perspective into most conversations, you you can gain a lot, particularly arguments, you know. When you disagree or when you're having a problem, um perspective I think is a very powerful tool, very very powerful. Um you know, I just give you an example of you know I I, I I spend a lot of time in the U.S. I mean I live in the U.S. and I live in Australia, so I'm I'm sort of you know I'm not bi-coastal, I'm sort of by by do you call it oceans. I mean I'm 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 spending uh, I've I've been in the U.S. since 2007 and I've spent more time there than I have in Australia, and you know I look at what's going on in the big messages politically about you know sort of the last you know 15 years 17 years which is this terror terrorism issue of of you know people people in america have this view that you know there's a huge fear of terrorism and i understand that i I get that you know and and when you have these shootings and you have these lone wolves it's 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 not good you know it's not good however just to bring some perspective to this you know, you have a country that is as an epidemic of diabetes, an epidemic of heart disease and cancer and stroke. And, you know, not not like thousands. We're talking about a million people dying a year from these diseases. That's a lot of people that are dying essentially from this category of being in the 70% group of pain of suffering of illness and where's the conversation about this where's the perspective when it comes if we're talking about saving life and making lives better and happier and and more secure you know i don't see those conversations taking place in state of the union speeches or political speeches or any you know i don't know do you see them
0: no not at all
1: so i think this is helpful and not to not to put any not to not to denigrate or any or put any pressure off security, but, you know, it needs to be a broader conversation. I think perspective can help bring people together. Hmm. Wow. Oh.
0: I think that makes uh, a very sort of fitting end to our conversation. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
4: Hmm.
1: Define. Can you define what you would say is unmistakable? And Then I'll give you a better answer. What would you, how would you define unmistakable?
0: Yeah, given that I had to write a book called Unmistakable, I'm happy to do that. Um, I define unmistakable as something so distinctive that nobody else could have created it but you. It's immediately recognized as something that you made.
1: Hmm. Okay. Now give me the question again. What do you think it is
0: that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I'd say it's listening to the inner voice and letting it out, and if you can't let it out yourself, it's seeking those around you that can help draw out that inner voice, that inner knowledge, that inner inner, inner essence of truth. I, I believe that you don't learn anything new. You just remember what you've forgotten. And so for most of us, our purpose, our job, is to bring those answers from the inner depths to the conscious. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, um, I can see now why Philip referred you uh, as a guest. This has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, where can people learn more about you and your work?
1: So they can go to rebootwithjoe.com. That's uh, that's my website. With, if it can help people get back on track if they're feeling fat sick and nearly dead. They can go to Netflix and they can just put Joe Cross into the search of Netflix and I've put three movies, I've made three films that are up there. There's Fat Sick and Nearly Dead 1 and 2 and there's a the new movie called The Kids Menu which is all about how we how we help fight this disease for children in America and around the world. I've written a number of books, they're all on my website and I'm on Instagram at, at Joe the juicer and on Twitter at Joe the juicer and of course on Facebook. Um pretty hard to miss there and also, um, I think that's, yeah, I think, I think that's it. And we've got a newsletter at RebootWithJoe.com, which is, which is um, we put out lots of inspirational stuff and recipes and juicing and anyone who's interested in working out ways to get more micronutrients into their body, I'm your guy. Awesome. awesome.
0: And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more.